The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So to continue with the theme of wisdom, Buddhism is often considered to be a wisdom tradition. And... uh, And to some degree that uh, it's seen as the wisdom is the gateway to liberation and living a liberated life. So what is wisdom? One thing is good to know is that it's a faculty we have, the the discerning faculty, the the distinguishing faculty, the faculty that of seeing and understanding clearly. It's a capacity we have. So it doesn't involve a lot of book learning and study and learning all the lists of Buddhism, but rather it's uh, developing our native natural capacity to see clearly. uh, A lot of it has to do with becoming uh, clearer and clearer in our capacity to be aware. And that eventually leads to what I'm going to talk about today uh, as revelatory wisdom. And this is kind of an idiosyncratic uh, title term from, that I've come up with. And I like it because uh, it implies to me that uh, things are revealed to us as we practice rather than us figuring it out or, or probing deeply or trying so hard to kind of understand what's there. We bring ourselves to a place where we allow experience to show its nature to us, its characteristics to us. And so that we, we are preparing ourselves for this revelation of the deeper building blocks of experience for the purpose of liberation, for the purpose of no longer clinging to things. And so these earlier forms of wisdom, the, the wisdom that uh, distinguishes things, is, uh, helps us to uh, distinguish and make choices uh, that move us towards greater clarity. A lot of that has to do with becoming calmer and more still, not because calmness and stillness per se is the point, though it can be quite nice and enlivening in a wonderful way to have a certain kind of stillness of the mind, calmness of the mind. Um, it's calmness of mind that allows us to seek more clearly. To, then to see more clearly, we can make better choices that can support the continued deepening of that clarity, deepening of that stillness. The analogy that I, I like to give for this is that uh, um, many places apparently now uh, in the world, uh, because of the shelter in place, things have slowed down, there's a lot less traffic, a lot less traffic noise and in some urban areas. And people are surprised to hear the sounds of birds. They didn't know there were so many birds living in these urban areas because they couldn't hear them. And now they hear them. Or uh, in the, the canals of Venice, uh, they're discovering, and they probably always knew some degree, someone knew, but uh, it was so uh, churned up the mud that the water was brown and you couldn't see into it. And people weren't aware of the fish that were swimming in those canals. Now that there's less traffic in the canals, the water has settled and people will see dolphins and fish swimming in the canals. Uh, Or here in the Bay Area, uh, uh, I kind of uh, of forget 
that there are mountains on the edges of the Bay Area, Mount Diablo, Mount Hamilton, and uh, every once in a while, when the air is clear of smog, I can see with crystal clarity the mountains across the bay. And it's kind of a revelation. I kind of like, wow, look at that. It's, they seem so close by. So all those examples are examples of something uh, disappearing to create a clarity uh, so that we can see much more uh, clearly something that was missing or something that was covered over in other times. So the same thing with our mind. The calmness and clarity we're cultivating is to settle the things that obscure our ability to see the underlying nature of the moment-to-moment experience we have. And one of the, so one of the things we're settling is our conceptual mind, the mind that makes stories, interpretations, predictions, the mind that lives in memories in the future, and even the more quieter mind that has simple concepts of things. <coughs> Excuse me. So even the simpler, uh, the mind that has simpler concepts of things, some of them are quite innocent, some of them are quite useful. And, um, but uh, to always be thinking these concepts keeps us in a more active part of the mind, keeps little things to be obscured. So for example, I'm sitting here in what usually have been called a meditation hall, and if I kind of uh, are, are thinking in meditation, I'm sitting in a meditation hall, this is a meditation hall, it's true, but it's uh, in a certain degree, but it's, um, it's kind of keeping the mind busy. And I could let go of the concept of meditation hall and just be aware of the walls, the carpet, the ceilings, the lights, and just see them. I don't have to even have names for them, light and carpets. I just become aware and see. And this quieting of the conceptual mind, the advantage of it is that at, with greater clarity, something gets revealed. We see something, and we start seeing what I call the underlying building blocks through which we build the, the conventional world that we live in, conventional sense of self and ideas of who I am. And the value of going to those building blocks, it, the kind of underlying nature of things, is we have a much better vantage point to see how we make concepts, this, how we're adding things on top of things, how we complicate it more than it needs to. And in particular, we can see that we are clinging to, reaching out to touch and to hold, pulling back, resisting. That this whole world of clinging and grasping that is so subtle, the deepest kinds of clinging we have are often invisible to us. Um, the, uh, it isn't, invisible doesn't mean that it's, or, uh, that it's insignificant, it's like the underlying roots. That's the metaphor the Buddha gave. There is, you know, there's these roots underground that, that as long as the roots are there, are going to keep sprouting plants. And if there's uh, the roots of suffering, then those roots that are there are going to continue to make suffering. And so to get clear enough, quiet enough, to begin seeing what's under the surface, because we're quiet, we see the roots of greed, of hatred, and delusion, of clinging, grasping, pushing away. Now, these, this revelatory side of wisdom, 
what's in particular is what's seen is what in our tradition is called uh, real, the real insight, insight with a capital I, is uh, said to be that which is universal to all experiences that we have. Uh, we, everyone shares these things. It's not personal to, to us, to any individual, in the sense that it doesn't have to do with uh, our biography, our history of our life, what happened to us in our life, uh, how we were conditioned by society and life experiences. It has to do with what's always true at the underlying level of all experience. And to really see that is called insight. And, uh, the, like, and the three primary insights, the three things that are revealed when the mind is clear and calm enough is the degree to which things are inconstant. Often it's called impermanent in English, uh, anicca. And they, it's, in some ways it's fine to call it impermanence, but for some people that implies it's impermanent because eventually it's not going to be here. It's going to stop. In anicca, in the, it's a deep insight, is, uh, is that also, but the deeper moment-to-moment experience is that things are inconstant, they're flowing, they're moving, they're inconstant, they're coming here and they're disappearing, appearing and disappearing over and over again. And I don't want to convince you that that's the case, but as the mind gets quiet and still, we, f- we notice that the way we experience things, and that's an important term, the way that we experience things, uh, whatever it might be, is not a constant stream, like it's there and a c- continuously. There's something about the way that our senses, our mind, how we experience things that go on, that appears and disappears, appears and disappears. Uh, one of the first places that I discovered this was with pain in meditation, when I was instructed to bring very careful attention to the pain, almost like I put my, my attention right in the middle of it, and lo and behold, the idea I had that pain was a solid mass of burning, searing, stabbing, it turned out to be a little bit those sensations, but they were um, uh, pulsing, arri- appearing and disappearing, like little pinpricks coming and going, coming and going. And this dance in a little square centimeter of my knee was fascinating to watch, it appear and disappear. And when I long, no longer imputed a solid mass of pain, but rather this inconstant pinpricking sensations, it became, I had a very different relationship to it. I started to see how I was uh, resisting it, attacking it, building up a self, having self-pity, all kinds of other things that I didn't really see when it was just a solid mass. But all kinds of things, not just painful things, we start seeing the inconstant nature of how things are experienced. And the value of that, that kind of clarity, it's revealed, the value of it, is that it highlights for us two things. It highlights to us our clinging, how we grasp and get attached, and it begins to show us that there's an alternative. It's been to show us the futility or the suffering or the the, em- the kind of the, the, the vacuous nature or value of clinging and attachment. And there starts to be a transition where it becomes easier and easier or more and more what the system does is begin to let go, begin to soften, open up. 
the, th- the second and third insights are insights into in um, um, dukkha, suffering, the unsatisfactoriness, the the, the kind of <clears throat> subtle, subtle irritation that comes in our experience when we're for and against it. And then the not-selfness of the experience. That somehow the way that we construct our experience, the way that we participate in it, the way that experience occurs to us, that there is some kind of uh, impersonal or an aspect of it. It's causes and conditions that come together. And it's an impu- there's a certain way in which it's a con- conceptual overlay, the idea of an agent or a self that's responsible for it all or guilty for it all or whatever. There's a, this is not to convince you that there is no self. That's not the idea. The idea is as the mind gets quiet and still and clear, there's no longer the overlay of self-concepts on the experience. And the experiences in and of themselves can occur without any self imputed into them. And it's very freeing to have that happen. It's a relief not to do the work of creating a self, assuming a self, living on this idea of self. It's like a vacation from these self ideas. And it shows us the possibility of freedom. And, uh, and that'll be the last uh, of the five forms of wisdom for tomorrow. We'll talk about liberating wisdom. So today it's revelatory wisdom. As the mind gets clear, inconstancy is revealed. And then we just allow it to be revealed. And that's why I did this meeting thing. Rather than meeting inconstancy, we allow it to just appear and show itself to us so thoroughly that there's no more meeting anymore. It's just a flow of inconstant inconstant phenomena in all directions, 360 degrees. So thank you very much and I so much appreciate this chance to have this time with you and I look forward to tomorrow.